0: When faith-based organizations and leaders put the kingdom of God above their organization's mission, what happens? What is possible when women and men pursue collaboration over competition and alliances over divisions? This is the Rooting for Rivals podcast, a six-episode series released in coordination with the new book, Rooting for Rivals, by Peter Greer and Chris Horst with Jill Heisey. Well, welcome to episode two of the Rooting for Rivals podcast, the second episode in a short series highlighting leaders pursuing collaboration over competition. In this episode, we address open handedness in the context of the relationship between donors and ministries. And we're doing this through the lens of Todd Peterson and Mark Green. These two men are amazing and along with many other organizational leaders and donors in the Bible translation space have modeled what it looks like to put the kingdom of God before a single organization's mission. Todd Peterson is a former NFL player who was the interim CEO of one of the largest Bible translation organizations, seed company. A few years ago, Todd decided to open an annual weekend fundraiser that was bringing in millions of dollars for seed company, to include other Bible translation organizations. Instead of exclusively funding the organization that he was leading, Todd began to ask himself this question. What if The weekend could connect donors to other organizations doing similar work as well? His friend, Mart Green, helps resource Bible translation efforts, and Mart is also passionate about bringing translation organizations together to achieve more than would be possible in silos. Todd and Mart have been instrumental and bringing donors and organizations together. I'm here with the co-authors of Rooting for Rivals, Peter Greer and Chris Horst. And before we dive into this conversation with Todd and then with Mart, Peter, would you share a little bit about these two men and why you invited them to be on the show?
1: As we started doing the research uh, for Rooting for Rivals and trying to figure out what are those case studies that we want to highlight. What are those exemplars? What are those individuals that really do have an open-handed posture and think about the kingdom more than they think about their organization? Uh, We kept hearing about the incredible work that was being done in Bible translation and the way that organizations were coming together together. And as we looked into that story, we realized that it wasn't just an organization story, but it also was a story about donors that had a really big vision. And the two individuals that had been involved in this uh, were Mart and Todd. And so we are so excited that you're going to get to hear more about their story, uh, about their friendship, about their collaboration, about the way that they dreamed some really big dreams that would be impossible to accomplish On their own. And so these two individuals, they look at the world through a lens of abundance and they are involved in some very exciting work. So we are so happy that we're going to be able to share the story with you.
0: Well, first, we'll be hearing from Todd Peterson. Todd spent 13 years in the NFL and has been passionate about getting the Bible into every language in the world for a very long time. From 2005 to 2014, he served on Seed Company's board and was its interim CEO in 2014 and 2015. He's joined with other families, including Mark Green, to build an alliance called Illuminations, which is a community of donors and Bible translation organizations that have raised over $90 million in the last four donor weekends. So without further ado, here is the first half of the story with Todd Peterson. Well, Todd, first of all, you were a professional kicker in the NFL who eventually chaired the Seed Company board and became its interim CEO for a time. What led you to be an advocate for Bible translation?
2: You yeah, know, that's a great question, Blake. Um, the short answer is that I had a college teammate who, ironically, was um, Destined for NFL greatness and had his career cut short. He was an all-American offensive tackle at the university of Georgia. Uh, my best friend there, uh, name is Alec Millen and Alec was going to be a great offensive tackle in the NFL, but he blew his shoulder out. His career was, uh, prematurely shortened. God had a different plan for his life. He ended up in seminary. Uh, pastored for a few years and then became a Bible translator, as crazy as that sounds. And he said to me one day, you know, you need to know about this and um asked my wife and I if we'd support he and his wife in their mission work and and then that led to him introducing us to Roy Peterson, who at the time was the president and CEO of the seed company and we were clueless you know we were both walking with Christ and growing up in the church and come to faith in our teenage you know years and and fallen in love with Jesus and fallen in love with with the word and had no earthly idea that there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people groups on earth who were culturally and linguistically distinct and that when God talks about you know every tribe nation language and people in revelation seven being before the throne and before the lamb, that it was 7,000 different nations and, you know, living languages come and go and there's dynamic, you know, kind of reality to the language world. And, and so, you know, whether or not we're going to get to, you know, the throne and it's only going to be 7,000, I don't know. It might be eight or nine or 10. We've been around for thousands of years, but the bottom line is it wasn't 220 or 30 or 40 like I thought, countries in the world and just an eye opener. And we quickly realized that there's two things that last forever, the word of God and the soul of man and Bible translation is the intersection of those two things. And what, what greater thing could we give our lives to?
0: Hmm. Yeah. And seed company is, it's a large organization. And even in your answer there, you're talking about a greater greater mission that went beyond seed company for years you hosted a weekend fundraiser that brought in millions of dollars. Then, uh, as a part of the Illuminations Alliance, you made a decision to open this weekend fundraiser to the network of organizations, the uh, network of Bible translators to come and be a part of that fundraiser as well in 2015. So maybe you could start by just sharing a little bit about what that weekend fundraiser was like and then why you decided to include other organizations in that as
1: well.
2: Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, You know, I, I would be remiss if I said I had some master plan or great plan to, like, you know, move the heavens, you know, by my kingdom mindedness. I mean, the reality was that in my NFL career, we had the privilege of giving, you know, substantially more money as a young couple than we would have ever, you know, conceived of as I was leaving the game, I was considering, you know, do I kind of play another year and make a bunch of money and give it away? Or is there something else God wants to do? And, and the Lord had a different plan and he wanted us to host this first Bible translation kind of major donor fundraiser. And so we kind of leveraged all our influence. And in 2007, my wife and I, you know, hosted about 425 people at our country club in Atlanta and pulled out all the stops with our friends and asked friends like Chris Tomlin to lead worship and Louis Giglio and Randy Alcorn and, and different kinds of people to, to be there and to, to share in the program. And, and what happened was it, kind of gave us a vision for, you know, Hey, it's one thing to write a check. It's another thing to write a check and, or use your influence to, to help other people see why they might want, want to write a check. And, and so had I played and written a check, I might've been able to give a million bucks or something, you know, that year, but, but instead retiring and kind of giving my year to that cause, we saw millions of dollars given. And all of a sudden it started this kind of like thinking in the, Seed company world, we ought to be doing this every week you know every year at least once you know a year for a weekend and so, to your point it it started what was known for a while as the president's forum and it was like you said a multi million dollar kind of gathering each year, and some years people might give three or four or five million and others maybe six and but then in twenty fourteen we had an opportunity to host what we were going to call Illuminations, and it was gonna be kind of a seed company milestone celebration because in late twenty thirteen or early twenty fourteen, seed company knew in the summer of twenty thirteen they were gonna hit their thousands language. And so we couldn't time it perfectly, but we knew by about December of thirteen or you know, sometime early in fourteen. We were going to hit a 1,000 languages, and at the time, I was chairman of the board and the CEO at the time, Roy Peterson, said, man, we cannot miss this opportunity. April of 2014, we planned, we thought we'd have this deal. Well, we had it, a lot of different circumstances going into it. Roy had been called to American Bible Society. I'd stepped in as the interim president and CEO of Seed Company, out of the chairmanship, And we had the weekend. Um, My dear friend, Mark Green, was there. Uh, We had asked a whole bunch of folks there, key stakeholders, old board members, other organizational partners, CEOs, et cetera, and people gave $21 million. About 100 couples gave $21 million. Wow. So all of a sudden, it was like, what in the world just happened? Well, my wife and I were leaving for our 20th anniversary right from that gathering, and again, you know, I was not, you know, at that point in my life thinking I was going to be the CEO of a ministry, and, you know, here I was, and, you know, I just was kind of like, holy smoke, what in the world's going on? And so we had planned, or I had planned kind of a surprise getaway for our 20th anniversary. We left. We had some friends with us. We were gone couple days into that trip, I was on a jog and I was thinking to myself, what just happened isn't about an organization. I mean, that that was so much bigger and and grander and like almost incomprehensible what just happened. You know, again, the the most we'd ever seen given in one of these weekends prior to that was I think six and a half or $6.6 million. And we saw $21 million. Nobody had ever heard of anything like this. I mean, we we asked around and the most anybody had ever heard in any ministry sector of being given in a donor weekend was like thirteen million. And so I'm on this jog and I'm just having a conversation with the Lord and I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, you know, this isn't about the seed company. It's it's not about any organization. It's not about you. It's not about people you know, who have God's word. It's about people who don't have God's word. It's about me, Jesus, you know, my fame and renown among the nations. It's about every tribe, nation, language, people getting the the, the scripture in their language, you know, think bigger. And the bigger was kind of like, okay, seed company is amazing. I wouldn't have served as chairman for five years. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have been on the board for nine years. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have given tons of money to it if it wasn't. But at the end of the day, Seed Company cannot make Revelation 7-9 happen on its own. The way that's going to happen is by Bible translation organizations working together with people like us who are passionate about this cause and, and called to be generous toward it. And together we could eradicate Bible poverty. And so what would it look like if we said, hey, people, Illumination's isn't about the seed company. It's about the Bibleist people of the world. It's about the glory of God. It's about the fame and renown of Jesus among the nations. And slowly but surely, people started to really listen to that and pay attention to it. And before you know it, 2015, March, we had five agencies involved in a collaborative fundraiser.
0: Hmm. And what was the outcome of that that weekend when you had those five agencies there?
2: Yeah, it was stunning um you know in a sense it wasn't an apple to an apple because again in april of 2014 it was one agency that had done all kinds of planning around celebrating a thousandth language project we'd already contracted with a venue for march of 2015 thinking it was going to be a seed company thing Now, all of a sudden, we're at this venue, which we had planned for being a seed company thing that was a smaller venue, et cetera, and so we really found ourselves in an interesting situation. We were not able to have as big a gathering because of the fact that we had intentionally chosen a smaller venue because we didn't have a 1,000 languages to celebrate again. I mean, you don't decide you're going to celebrate 1,094. I mean, the year before was kind of a milestone, So we were at a place in Southern California, March 2015. We had about 45% fewer people and we saw $17 million given. So in April of 2014, hundred couples gave 21 million. And in March of 2015, about 60 couples gave 17 million. So we actually saw an average gift of about $300,000 compared to the year before, 200000 So it was a stunning thing. It just was smaller, but we felt like God knew that. And the irony of that was the venue was actually a property called the Montage. And if you understand the definition of Montage, what it means is essentially that these collaborative parts of a presentation present more beautifully than any single one of those parts could present alone. And here we had five agencies working together, which we believe was presenting a much more beautiful and compelling picture to a donor community than if one agency had been standing up there. So God knew what he was doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you you did an interview for Christianity Today where you talked about how the donor community really responded and has been responding well to this collaboration. I think about the practicalities of stewarding donor relationships really well and and how organizations navigate that. So how did you decide, even with those five organizations that weekend, on how to best follow up with these donors and maintain the relationship with the don these donors just practically how did that work
2: Yeah that's a really insightful um question on your part you know in fairness to the other agencies you know we were so late in the planning stage coming out of April 2014 heading into March of 2015, that by the time we actually had kind of formally made the decision to say this is not a seed company thing, this is actually, you know, a God thing, it's a bigger thing, it's multiple agencies, was pretty deep into the fall of 2014. So we had about four or five months worth of time to plan for March of 2015 being collaborative and multi-agency. The reality was that first year was heavily seed company oriented and influenced, even though it wasn't about the seed company. And we talked about Bible translation, the Bible translation movement, the many partners in Bible translation, Illuminations representing multiple agencies working together. It was still, you know, kind of the crux of it was, was, was driven by seed companies, so it wasn't that complicated on a practical level to figure out how to work out kind of the back end stuff. It was the next year that we really got into the nitty gritty as as one of the leaders in Bible translation calls it the sausage making, and it's been practically challenging but incredibly rewarding. When you start having agencies kind of share fundraising, it's not easy. It's not. It's not. You know, simple um it requires tremendous humility on these agency leaders parts the CEOs parts the boards parts it, it requires an abundance mentality on all their parts they got to see the glasses overflowing at a minimum half full you can't see it half empty or it doesn't make sense it's illogical to do this you got to believe god's got the cattle on a thousand hills you know, it requires a lot of generosity between each other, you know, CEOs leaning toward each other, considering what's in the best interest of other agencies. You know, it obviously requires the donors to have humility and, and to be extravagantly generous and to really think we're the generation that could do this in partnership. It's the way the body of Christ is designed to work, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. So it, it's been an interesting thing. Um, it's it's a practical outworking that I believe is a manifestation of the holy spirit it's it's the fruit of the spirit because it doesn't make sense in our flesh. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I wonder in addition to what you just shared in that answer, if there's anything you would like to tell specifically a nonprofit leader who's listening to this episode about what should and then maybe even what shouldn't be replicated about the way that you approach this process of building alliances with these other organizations if there's anything practically that they should keep in mind when they start on that journey as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, I like, I, I could write a book on that. Um, first of all, I think that there's a counterintuitive reality to what we've seen happen. You know, so much of what we have, have done hasn't made sense. Um, you know, we, we, as leaders tend to think certain ways and, and, You know, I just feel like a lot of what I've seen happen over the last few years has kind of been counterintuitive. You know, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We read that in Isaiah 55, and and I think so often we kind of think we we know, you know, the best way or, or we see what is logical or we can kind of chart a, a path, and the reality is that, you know, God's way is the best way, and it sometimes doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, the scripture says it's more blessed to give than receive. I mean, that doesn't really make sense. Like, I I, I would think I'd be more blessed if I was receiving, but the reality is that when we're giving, we're more blessed. You know, the scripture says the world of the generous gets larger and larger, the world of the stingy smaller and smaller. And so I think that I would say, you know, just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean don't do it. In fact, honestly, probably what you're thinking is opposite of what you ought to do a lot of the time. I mean, I've seen extravagant generosity and Christ-like humility and, and like, impeccable integrity. We always talk about generosity, humility, and integrity— being kind of these pillars or this underpinning for this uncommon unity we've seen in Bible translation, you know, heretofore an unseen unity. Like we saw a fragmented Bible translation movement, you know, a couple decades ago or even ten years ago. But in the last few years we've seen these these biblical attributes of, of biblical generosity you know, uh, Christ-like humility and and real vulnerable transparency, integrity, like um, just catalyze crazy unity. Like organizations doing crazy things that don't make sense, leaders doing things that don't make sense, and always being able to point back to like, well, here's why because God's ways aren't our ways, and and He really does have a better way, and if we just get in lockstep with the Holy Spirit and we kind of stop our territorialism, we stop our turf wars, we stop competing for the same dollars, we stop fearing the future, we stop having a scarcity mentality, what we find out is God really has crazy things in front of us. I mean, Ephesians 2 says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do great works, which he prepared and advance for us to do. Well, scripture actually says we'll do greater works than he did. And then in Ephesians 3, it says he's the God who does immeasurably more, exceeding abundantly more in and through us than we could ever ask or imagine. But in order for that stuff to happen, we have to be willing to do things God's way. And God's way is like be radically generous toward each other, stunningly generous toward each other. The same way I was as Jesus giving my life for you, I gave everything as God the Father gave his only son. We're expected as Christ followers to offer back to him everything we have and are, and to offer our brother anything he needs. So I think I'd say to a leader, don't be logical. I mean, if you're thinking logical, you might not be thinking right. We've found things to be incredibly counterintuitive. Um, We've seen God do crazy things when we were really willing to let down our guard, when CEOs were willing to humble themselves. And all that's done is served to accelerate Bible translation to the point that we really do believe that this is the generation that will eradicate Bible poverty.
0: Well, as Todd represented the seed company during this time as interim CEO, his friendship with Mark Green helped propel this collaboration forward. In this second half of the episode, we'll hear what it looks like for a donor to work with multiple organizations at the same time to create a community putting the kingdom of God first. Mark Green is the ministry investment officer for Hobby Lobby and is the founder of Mardell Christian and Education Supply Stores. His retail career began with his parents who founded Hobby Lobby in their home and now have over 800 stores in 47 states. Since 2010, he has been a leading champion of Illuminations, the Collective Impact Alliance that we're talking about, working to eradicate Bible poverty by 2033. Mart and his wife, Diana, live in Oklahoma and attend North Church. They have four children, three children-in-law, and seven grandchildren. So here is Mart's side of the story. Well, Mart, why are you passionate about translating the Bible into every language in the world?
3: Yeah, I, I'm definitely passionate about uh, translating the Bible into every language. It was in the early 1990s, actually, when I saw a book called Any Given Day in the Life of the Bible— at that time, uh, picture books were popular. Any given day in the life of Hawaii, any given day in the life of California. So photographers would go and spend all day long just taking pictures of Hawaii. So the Bible translation guys thought, well, let's take a picture of the Bible translation world. And so I had no context for what that meant. So I picked this book up, and I'm I'm going through it, and it I just assumed Bible translation was probably done at a university, probably really smart people, because if you can translate the Bible, you got to be really smart. So it's probably done at universities. And um, I'm thinking maybe there's a couple hundred languages. You know, there's a couple hundred countries, and some countries share the same language. So, But to find out there's 6,000 languages and that people actually go and live with the people and translate the Bible, living in all kinds of places in the world, jungles and deserts and all this stuff, and all these pictures kind of blew my mind. And so uh, so anyway, that led to our family getting involved in Bible translation. And, and because we have Christian bookstores and we sell Bibles, we thought it'd be kind of neat to pay for the first edition Bibles of that people got in their language the first time. And so uh, at that point we were working with a book of Bible translators. We've worked with several since then and just they would each year they'd say, Hey, here's the Bible translation we got done and nobody's funded these printings yet. So hey, hey, well, can we help you print those? So that's the reason that I was on an airplane headed to Guatemala in nineteen ninety eight. They said, Mart, you've been paying for these printing of Bibles you got to come to a dedication. It's a neat opportunity to see people get God's word in their heart language for the first time. So sure, finally got the right day to work out, February the 7th, 1998. So I get on a the plane, they'll go down there on February the 5th, and they'll give me a sheet of paper, and it said the Eastern Huckle Tech was the name of the people group. It said there was 30,000 people who speak this language, and so I thought, I never thought about how many people speak a language? I assume if people speak a language, there's lots and lots of people. So I thought, oh, man, that's there's only 3,000 women. Oh, only 8,000 can read. Only a 1,000 were believers, and only 400 believers could read. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is not a good return on investment. We just sent $20,000 down here. Only 400 people could even read the thing, you know. And then I got depressed when I saw how long it took. This translation started in 1958. That's 1990. Wow. That's 40 years. I'm born in 1961. So somebody's been translating this my entire life. Well, I'm going to go back home and not do this anymore. I'm not going to send money to translation only has 400 readers, you know. But I don't know what to tell you who spent 40 years of your life. They went down there in their 30. They're now 70 years old. And so I don't know how to console those. I'm just going to go make some more money and do something different. So it's kind of my business mind going on, return investment. Get to Guatemala City. They tell me, oh, no, it's not here. We're going to get on a bus. Okay, let's get on the bus. So 10 hours later, I'm on this bus. So February the 6th, I'm on a bus all day long. And they return the investment question because I want to tell a good story when I come home, right? I got our employees. I got the family. I want to say, hey, wow, we did, you know, all this. And so I'm like, there's no good story here, guys. This is not going to be a good story. So that's kind of the spirit on the end on February the 8th, 1998. Go to this ceremony. And they actually do sell the Bibles for subsidized price, whatever is culturally relevant. Maybe it's a quarter, maybe it's a dollar. But, you know, it costs more than that, so we help pay for the rest of that. Um, and the uh, translators are actually from North America. That was the s- style of translation was somebody from North America went down there and found four Eastern Hucklepeck men, in this case of all men, to translate the Bible. So here's these six translators, and they, in the ceremony, give the Bible to them. So when they did that, when they gave a copy to Gaspar, he was the first local translator that went up. He did something I'd never seen before, and that was he openly wept as he went forward to get that Bible, in his heart language, for the first time. And God has never spoken to me audibly, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit prompted me with a question, and that was, why don't you go tell Gaspar he's not a good return on investment? Oh. You know, uh, yeah, for two days, I've been stewing on that question. (laughs) And now Gaspar's weeping as he's waited 40 years to get God's word in his heart language. So in that moment, I went from why, why are we doing this? Why are we spending money doing this? Why why do you spend your life, 40 years of your life doing this? And normally it only takes 10 or 15 years, but there was guerrilla warfare. I mean, all kinds of reasons it took 40 years. Uh, but I went from asking why to asking a whole new question and that, and that is how how are we going to make sure that everybody on planet earth all 6,000 plus vital languages have God's word in their heart language and it doesn't matter how many speakers there are to me everybody should be able to hear God's word because I, I believe that God would not speak to you in a second language he would speak to you in your heart language so uh, since that moment there it's 1998, I've been doing everything I could to, uh,
0: to do that. Hmm. And for a long, long time, Bible translators have been or were working in silos, and you, you had a vision to bring them together. So where, where did this vision come from?
3: Yeah, it kind of came in two parts for me. It actually came in the beginning. The idea and the vision I had was on uh, June 23rd of 1998, Long story, but I was in a meeting, and after the meeting was over, I just had this idea in my head that someday there would be a project so big that no ministry partner could do it by themselves. They would have to come together. They'd have to work together. Otherwise, it wouldn't get done. And then the, the resource partners, it would be so big that nobody could fund it. The resource partners would come together, and then both of those groups would come together because donors have more than just money. They have time. They have talent. They have ideas. And so I thought, wow. And so that thought just came to my mind. And so you know, it just is what I wasn't expecting it and all that stuff, but I journaled it. I wrote it in my journal. Someday a project so big, no ministry can do it on itself, no resource, and they'll both come together. That actually set in my heart for 12 years. And then it was February the 15th, 1990, I mean, 2010, 12 years after my Guatemala experience, Todd Peterson invites me back to Guatemala to share it with the seed company. He said, hey, Mark, you had this incredible translation experience in Guatemala. We're going to have our board retreat in Guatemala. Hey, come back to Guatemala and share your Guatemala story in Guatemala. So I said, hey, that all seems to make sense. And my wife didn't get to go with me last time. So I went down there. And again, another long story. But while I was down there, I felt like God brought that thing that it's sitting in my heart, and it kind of moved back to the back of my brain, to be honest. After 12 years, you kind of lose track of it. It's kind of way back there. I thought, ah, that's it. Bible translation. Let's bring all the translation agencies together. Let's get some donor people together, and let's see if we can get both groups together. So that was February of 15, 2010. I got back home, called all the Bible translation agencies, I knew, called several donors and said, hey, will you guys all meet me in Orlando, May the 3rd? 2010. And so a couple of months after getting that back in Guatemala, so uh, I don't go to Guatemala anymore. because When I go down to Guatemala, I come back with big projects. And so so anyway, that was that's where the vision started.
0: And how over time have organizational leaders and donors reacted to this initiative? So when, when these Bible translators get your phone call and donors get this phone call, how did they respond to that?
3: Yeah, that same because I had been in that space, the Bible translation space, so I had built relationships. So there was a trust. It wasn't like I came out of left field and they never heard of me and knew who I was. Um, so that helped um, with the donors. I had built the donors that I had a relationship with. I'd never given with any of them before, to be honest. We, as a family, we give and we do things. And I say, hey, what about this? They also had an affinity to Bible translation. They also understood some of the issues that I had. And I also had an idea that I felt like helped make it easier. And that was we were getting, we were moving into the digital world. Now go back to 2010. Um, and so all of a sudden, we need to have all these texts digitized. I mean, we have over 2,100 New Testaments, but most of them were not in a digital format, not English and Spanish or large languages. But even your small languages, nobody had gone back and spent the money to digitize those. And so what was going to happen left on its own is each of these agencies would have built their own digital library, if you would, and uh, digitized them because people like e-version, Print On Demand, they were all knocking on the door saying, we need a digital version, we need a digital version because they're not going to do them. They weren't trying to print Bibles. They weren't trying to do audios like they're hearing. They weren't trying to do videos like Jesus. They were trying to digitize them and put them out, whether it's on Print On Demand or on your iPhone or, or all that. And so... That helped knowing that we had a common goal early on. So I said, hey, guys, what if we built one digital Bible library, but instead of building one for each of your organizations, we don't, I mean, one for Wycliffe, one for American Bible Society, one for Biblica, one for Lutheran Bible Treasure, one for the Word for the World, what if we built one digital Bible library, and what if we were to centralize all your texts, standardize them, what if we all use the same format, make it easier for the people downriver who need these, and uh, standardize them, centralize them, digitize them. And then, of course, my ultimate goal was to finalize them. So my first goal was to get them all to build a library. And then it was, then of course it was our goal, to say, hey, guys, we got the digital Bible library now. Let's finalize. Let's get all 6,000 versions done so that they can be in this digital format. So whether somebody wants to print the Bible, they want to make a video out of it, they want to make an audio, or they want to put it on a digital format or print-on-demand, and so uh so because of that i think it it was an intriguing idea it was a tool i call it a tool the digital bible ladder was a tool that we needed and because i was a funder versus a resource i mean a, a ministry partner i think i made it easier if one of the ministry partners would have called you always would have had uh, you know maybe a little bit of that well, are they you know what's their purpose and all that stuff so i think by being a resource partner a donor, it made it easier for me to call that meeting within 60 days, everybody was willing to come together.
0: Hmm. And it's, it's amazing just the story of how what's unfolding is showing this amazing collaboration between multiple organizations, multiple donors that are coming together towards a common purpose. And I imagine that a leader listening to this and to this story that you're sharing is probably agreeing with you in principle. Like, yes, this is a great idea, right? But when it comes to the nuts and the bolts of fundraising and organizational uniqueness, it feels uh, more challenging to figure out how to partner with other organizations in your same area. So yep. so what are some of the things that, that have been a key or keys to the success of bringing different Bible translators together that you believe could be applied to any kind of ministry?
3: Yeah, it's, yeah, getting everybody to work together is one level. So to build this Bible library was one thing because I had funders that were willing to fund that, you see, because we as funders didn't want to. Fund seven of them. (laughs) So, for us, it's going to be cheaper to build one library than a library for everybody. And so, and so that was good. But I knew the hardest thing was going to be is to get funders to come together uh, and all that. So, some of the keys, though, I think to getting there. One, I think as you've articulated, is we had a, a common passion. It was passion alignment and. We aligned really against a real simple vision that everybody wanted. We're all passionate about this. We all could align to it, but none of us could do it by ourselves. None of us could say we're going to eradicate Bible poverty. Okay, The largest organization in the Bible translation world cannot say that. They can do it by themselves. The only way we're going to eradicate Bible poverty is together. So when American Bible Society or Seed Company or Wycliffe has a donor, event, and they do, they're able to tell an incredible story. The only time that we can tell a different story, so we come all together and we do have a funding event that is common to all of us, we all can sl- raise the flag, eradicate Bible poverty. It's the only way we're going to do that together. And so, uh, so we knew that. So that was one of the key, I think, having cunning tools. So we as donors said, we'll fund tools for you guys, but only tools that you're going to share across all agencies. There are some t- tools that are very unique that different ministries need. They build those. They get them funded. We cheer that on. But there are some tools, like the Digital Bible Library, that are shared across all the agencies. And so those, those were the common tools that we had that brought us together. Um, and so that, that, that made it quite good. And another thing was we actually met monthly, and we asked the CEOs to come themselves, not to send somebody else. So we meet every month. Now, that's hard. Some of these are international, so they can't come every month. Uh, But they may have somebody in the U.S. So if they're located out of the country, sometimes we'll let a replacement come for the CEO. But we try to get the CEO there every time we can. We meet in the Dallas airport. We fly in that morning. We meet for four hours. We fly out that evening. And so, uh, but it's just communication and meeting once a month to build trust. Because that's really the equity that we have um, at every tribe, every nation. is collective impact is trust. And so we're building that trust. Um, and that's, and I think it's been a big key. And then, of course, the big, big key that happened is when Todd Peterson, who was the interim president of the seed company, had just had a funding event. He invited me to it, and they had just raised $20 million. I'd never seen $20 million raised from a couple hundred, 300 people. Um, and I actually left the meeting with two totally different emotions. With my Eradicate Bible Party hat on, I was super excited because $20 million just came translate the bible but i put my every tribe of nation hat on i thought oh man that's everything i hope to happen someday except one thing all the money is going to one ministry you know which of course it should there's no that's why c company had it but i thought man i hope to have a world class event like that and raise money for all the agencies and now i don't want to compete with that and so i kind of got into a dark room and couldn't figure out how to get out of it so i thought well maybe every tribe of a done and so when Todd Peterson called me and said, Mark, see, coming I mean, one of our core values is generosity. And we're thinking about maybe next year, Illuminations being about the movement, not one ministry. I said, Todd, you're absolutely crazy. You're the interim president. There's no way in the world that board is going to take a $20 million uh, celebration and turn it over to everybody else. You know, that, don't even tease me with that, you know? And so... I wouldn't even let my brain go there. He called me back four months later and said it again. I said, "Todd, you had a board meeting. Come on, did you tell your board what you're thinking? Uh, you're the interim president. You, they're not going to go with that." And uh, he said, "Yeah, no, I talked to him about it." And lo and behold, miraculously, I mean, it's the most stunning thing I've ever seen. Uh, the seed company said, "No, we want to serve this up to the movement, you know." And so uh, that that was what um, Todd calls stunning generosity, what our family calls extravagant generosity. Our, Our family mission statement is to love God intimately and live extravagant generosity. So to me,
0: that is extravagant generosity. I'm wondering what you would say about what other leaders should follow about Todd's example, if there's specific attributes about Todd that you see, even in the specific story that other leaders can learn from.
3: Yeah, wow, there's lots of things. Um, I, one of the things I, that I look for in people is three things, and they, they kind of go back to in First uh, John where uh, the Bible talks to us about the only Satan has three things. This world only offers three things, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's it. Everything comes there. Well, Satan created nothing, so Satan only thing he could do is take something that was neutral and corrupt it. So how does that work? So if you've got lust of the eyes, uh, that means what's the neutral? It's possessions, okay? Possessions. There's nothing wrong with possessions. and still you start lusting at them. Oh, I have to have that car. I have to have that house. I have to have those shoes. I have to have that dress. I have to have those, that suit. Whatever it is. So all of a sudden, so to me, if the lust of the eyes is the negative and possessions is the neutral, what's the, what is God's intent? And that would be generous, generosity. You find me a generous person, you don't have to worry about the lust of the place. They give their stuff away, not trying to take it in. So the pride of life, what's the neutral? It would be position and power. There's nothing wrong with position and power, but people can get pride of life and want to be served themselves. What is the opposite? What's the positive? It's humility. So finding somebody who has humility, they're serving instead of asking to be served, and position and power are no problem for that person. And then, uh, the lust of the flesh, you know, that's our sexuality, food, all the things. There's nothing wrong with pleasures. Those, that would be the neutral, pleasures. And so what is, what, is the, what is it that God wanted us? And that is to live with integrity. So what I say is I'm looking for somebody who's generous, who has humility, humility and has integrity, and that's what I found in Todd. And I believe when you put the GHs and I's together, the generosity, humility, and integrity in any leader at any time, anywhere – They've defeated the three things Satan has to use against us. And when you have that, then you can have unity. And so I believe that's the characteristics that drew me to Todd when I first met him and has allowed us to continue on this journey.
0: Well, Peter and Chris, after hearing Todd and Mark's incredible story about the collaboration they've built between donors and Bible translation organizations, what are some of the things that stuck out to you? that listeners can apply in their own contexts?
4: Well, Todd, Todd and Mark are crazy. And I think it's important that we just say that really clearly because what they're suggesting is radical. I mean, it is so counter what, you know, g- generic nonprofit leadership textbooks and philanthropic textbooks suggest. I mean, they are practicing some really countercultural stuff. Uh, when When Todd said... Just because it doesn't make sense, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it that that really I think encapsulates all of what these guys have been about and I know Peter that you've gotten to interact with them a lot over the years, but but my experience with these guys is that they're they're willing to challenge the norms and willing to to say in order to do the thing that we say that we're about, it's going to require thinking differently and and it is really provocative uh, and exciting that, to see the way that uh, they're both leaning into. Generosity and open-handedness in in how they're serving and and ministering and pursuing this goal of of seeing the Bible translated in every language in the world and the humility that's sort of baked into all their sharing and recognizing that their organization or their organizations that they're you know the ones that Mart's getting behind financially and partnering with they're saying like they don't have all the answers within these organizations. Yeah,
1: I I totally agree, Chris. And one of the pieces that uh, if we think about what stops greater collaboration, what stops a posture of rooting for your rivals, oftentimes it comes down to this scarcity mindset that if someone else has a little bit more, then there's a little bit less for me. And what we hear so clearly from Mart and from Todd is that that's, that's not true mm-hmm. in a yeah. kingdom perspective. That's not true when it comes to the grander mission that we have. And it's right. possible to look at this to say more for you means more for us. More for you means more for the kingdom. More for you is something that I'm going to stand and celebrate and, and casting this grander vision, grander vision that would be impossible for one organization to accomplish on her own. It's a rallying cry. And there is more generosity. There is more uh, good that comes from this. And what we see in Bible translation, we we dare to imagine what would happen if it wasn't just in the sector of Bible translation. But what if this sort of bigger vision was common for all kinds of different Mm -hmm. causes? What if all the anti- human trafficking organizations would come together and have a bigger goal? What if all of the churches in a community would come together and have a grander mission? What if all the poverty alleviation organizations would say collectively, this is what we're about? And so I think what they have demonstrated within the Bible translation movement is instructive for all of us, regardless of our sphere of influence. So I celebrate the, uh, as you said, Chris, just the the crazy, unusual, countercultural a worldview of
4: abundance and dreaming really big dreams together. And one thing that I think builds that sort of momentum as the first step is really understanding the issue and and understanding what you're about and who who are the players. And and I know from my own leadership and from interacting with a lot of peers, we can get this tunnel vision where we really only know what we're about and we really only know the issues of the countries that we're working in, our, our organization, or the sector that we're working in. And, and that sort of tunnel vision can cause us to lose sight of that larger vision. And, and so you heard that from both Todd and Mart, was this educational journey that they went on to really understand what are the, the big issues facing all the organizations in this sector? Who are the players? Who are the leaders out there that are doing this sort of work? Who has the best solutions to these problems? not being beholden to your own ideas, but recognizing that these other organizations and other leaders might have something to contribute. They may have systems that are better uh, to accomplish the mission that you're about. So I think that educational process is one that, again, it sounds, I I almost hate to admit it, but it feels in some ways like we don't have time to learn about what our peer organizations or rival organizations are up to because we've got our own stuff uh, that we have to manage. But I do think that's an important first step in this process. One One thing Mart shared, which I thought was really important. he was reflecting on what he appreciated about Todd, and he talked about it it really was the virtue that he saw in Todd and his humility and his uh, generosity and the way in which he conducted himself that really created the opportunity for unity to exist and and it was that virtue that was the foundation uh, for unity and and that you know. When, We started working on this project. That was something that we came to as well, that focusing on uh, organizational and personal virtues and vices is a great way to create the opportunity for unity, that we have to, as leaders and as organizations, be thinking about the vices that entrap us, the virtues that grow us more into the likeness of Christ. And, And as we reflect, as we reflected in the book, uh, really, it's those virtues that create the possibility for, for unity. And Mart, I thought, named that really powerfully.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rooting for Rivals podcast. Rooting for Rivals is a book by Peter Greer and Chris Horst with Jill Heise that reveals how faith-based ministries can multiply their impact by cooperating rather than competing with others. You can get the book anywhere books are sold. For more information about this episode, including links to resources mentioned in the show, visit www.rootingforrivals.com podcast.